This is section five of Old Times on the Mississippi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Old Times on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter five. Sounding. Faculties peculiarly necessary to a pilot. When the river is very low, and one steamboat is drawing all the water there is in the channel, or a few inches more, as was often the case in the old times, one must be painfully circumspect in his piloting. We used to have to sound a number of particularly bad places almost every trip, when the river was at a very low stage. Sounding is done in this way. The boat ties up at the shore, just above the shoal crossing. The pilot, not on watch, takes his cub or steersman, and a picked crew of men, sometimes an officer also, and goes out in the yawl, provided the boat has not that rare and sumptuous luxury a regularly devised sounding boat, and proceeds to hunt the best water, the pilot on duty watching movements through a spyglass meantime, and some instances assisting by signals of the boat's whistle signifying try higher up or try lower down, for the surface of the water, like an oil painting, is more expressive and intelligible when inspected from a little distance than very close at hand. The whistle signals are seldom necessary, however. Never, perhaps, except when the wind confuses the significant ripples upon the water's surface. When the yawl has reached the shoal place, the speed is slackened. The pilot begins to sound the depth with a pole ten or twelve feet long, and the steersman at the tiller obeys the order to hold her up to starboard, or let her fall off to larboard. Note 1. The term larboard is never used at sea now to signify the left hand, but was always used on the river in my time. Or, steady, steady as you go. When the measurements indicate that the yawl is approaching the shoalest part of the reef, the command is given to ease all, then the men stop rowing and the yawl drifts with the current. The next order is, stand by with the buoy. The moment the shallowest point is reached, the pilot delivers the order, let go of the buoy, and over she goes. If the pilot is not satisfied, he sounds the place again. If he finds better water higher up or lower down, he removes the buoy to that place. Being finally satisfied, he gives the order, and all the men stand their oars straight up in the air in line. A blast from the boat's whistle indicate that the signal has been seen. Then the men give way on their oars and lay the yawl alongside the buoy. The steamer comes creeping carefully down, is pointed straight at the buoy, husbands her power for the coming struggle, and presently, at the critical moment, turns on all her steam and goes grinding and wallowing over the buoy and the sand and gains the deep water beyond. Or maybe she doesn't. Maybe she strikes and swings. Then she has to while away several hours, or days, sparring herself off. Sometimes a buoy is not laid at all, but the yawl goes ahead, hunting the best water, and the steamer follows along in its wake. Often there is a deal of fun and excitement about sounding, especially if it is a glorious summer day, or a blustering night. But in winter the cold and the peril take most of the fun out of it. A buoy is nothing but a board four or five feet long, with one end turned up. It is a reversed bootjack. It is anchored on the shoalest part of the reef by a rope with a heavy stone made fast to the end of it. But for the resistance of the turned-up end, the current would pull the buoy under water. 
At night a paper lantern with a candle in it is fastened on top of the buoy, and this can be seen a mile or more, a little glimmering spark in the waste of blackness. Nothing delights a cub so much as an opportunity to go out sounding. There is such an air of adventure about it. Often there is danger. It is so gaudy and man-of-war-like to sit up in the stern-sheets and steer a swift yawl. There is something fine about the exultant spring of the boat when an experienced old sailor crew throw their souls into the oars. It is lovely to see the white foam stream away from the bows. There is music in the rush of the water. It is deliciously exhilarating in summer to go speeding over the breezy expanses of the river when the world of wavelets is dancing in the sun. It is such grandeur, too, to the cub, to get a chance to give an order, for often the pilot will simply say, Let her go about, and leave the rest to the cub, who instantly cries in his sternest tone of command, Ease starboard! Strong on the larboard! Starboard give way! With a will, men! The cub enjoys sounding for the further reason that the eyes of the passengers are watching all the yawl's movements with absorbing interest, if the time be daylight and if it be night, he knows that those same wondering eyes are fastened upon the yawl's lantern as it glides out into the gloom and fades away in the remote distance. One trip a pretty girl of sixteen spent her time in our pilot-house with her uncle and aunt, every day and all day long. I fell in love with her. So did Mr. T.'s cub, Tom G. Tom and I had been bosom friends until this time, but now a coolness began to arise. I told the girl a good many of my river adventures, and made myself out a good deal of a hero. Tom tried to make himself appear to be a hero, too, and succeeded to some extent, but then he always had a way of embroidering. However, virtue is its own reward, so I was a barely perceptible trifle ahead in the contest. About this time something happened which promised handsomely for me. The pilots decided to sound the crossing at the head of twenty-one. This would occur at nine or ten o'clock at night, when the passengers would be still up. It would be Mr. T.'s watch, therefore my chief would have to do the sounding. We had a perfect love of a sounding boat, long, trim, graceful, and as fleet as a greyhound. Her thwarps were cushioned. She carried twelve oarsmen. One of the mates was always sent in her to transmit orders to her crew, for ours was a steamer where no end of style was put on. We tied up at the shore above twenty-one and got ready. It was a foul night, and the river was so wide there that a landsman's uneducated eyes could discern no opposite shore through such a gloom. The passengers were alert and interested. Everything was satisfactory. As I hurried through the engine-room, picturesquely gotten up in storm-toggery, I met Tom and could not forbear delivering myself of a mean speech. "'Ain't you glad you don't have to go out sounding?' Tom was passing on, but he quickly turned and said, "'Now, just for that, you can go and get the sounding-pole yourself. I was going after it, but I'd see you in Halifax now before I'd do it. Who wants to go get it? I don't. It's in the sounding-boat.' "'It ain't either. It's been new-painted, and it's been up on the ladies' cabin guards two days drying.' I flew back, and shortly arrived among the crowd of watching and wondering ladies just in time to hear the command, "'Give way, men!' I looked over, and there was the gallant sounding boat booming away, the unprincipled Tom presiding at the tiller, 
and my chief sitting by him with a sounding-pole which I had been sent on a fool's errand to fetch. Then that young girl said to me, Oh, how awful to have to go out in that little boat on such a night! Do you think there is any danger? I would rather have been stabbed. I went off full of venom to help in the pilot-house. By and by the boat's lantern disappeared, and after an interval a wee spark glimmered upon the face of the water a mile away. Mr. T. blew the whistle, in acknowledgment backed the steamer out, and made for it. We flew along for a while, then slackened steam, and went cautiously gliding toward the spark. Presently Mr. T. exclaimed, "'Hello! The buoy-lantern's out!' He stopped the engines. A moment or two later he said, "'Why, there it is again!' So he came ahead on the engines once more, and rang for the leads. Gradually the water shoaled up, and then began to deepen again. Mr. T. muttered, "'Well, I don't understand this. I believe that buoy has drifted off the reef. Seems to be a little too far to the left. No matter. It is safest to run over it anyhow.' So in that solid world of darkness we went creeping down on the light. Just as our bows were in the act of plowing over it, Mr. T. seized the bell-ropes, rang a startling peal, and exclaimed, "'My soul! It's the sounding-boat!' A sudden chorus of wild alarms burst out far below. A pause, then a sound of grinding and crashing followed. Mr. T. exclaimed, "'There! The paddle-wheel has ground the sounding-boat to lucifer matches! Run! See who is killed!' I was on the main deck in the twinkling of an eye. My chief and the third mate and nearly all the men were safe. They had discovered their danger when it was too late to pull out of the way. Then, when the great guards overshadowed them a moment later, they were prepared and knew what to do. At my chief's order they sprang at the right instant, seized the guard, and were hauled aboard. The next moment the sounding yawl swept aft to the wheel and was struck and splintered to atoms. Two of the men and the cub Tom were missing, a fact which spread like wildfire over the boat. The passengers came flocking to the forward gangway, ladies and all, anxious-eyed, white-faced, and talked in awed voices of the dreadful thing. And often and again I heard them say, "'Poor fellows! Poor boy! Poor boy!' By this time the boat's yawl was manned and away to search for the missing. Now a faint call was heard off to the left. The yawl had disappeared in the other direction. Half the people rushed to one side to encourage the swimmer with their shouts. The other half rushed the other way to shriek to the yawl to turn about. By the callings the swimmer was approaching, but some said the sound showed failing strength. The crowd massed themselves against the boiler-deck railings, leaning over and staring into the gloom and every faint and fainter cry wrung from them such words as, "'Ah, poor fellow, poor fellow, is there no way to save him?' But still the cries held out, and drew nearer, and presently the voice said pluckily, "'I can make it. Stand by with a rope!' What a rousing cheer they gave him! The chief mate took his stand in the glare of the torch-basket, a coil of rope in his hand, and his men grouped about him. The next moment the swimmer's face appeared in the circle of light, and in another one the owner of it was hauled aboard, limp and drenched, while cheer on cheer went up. It was that devil Tom. The yawl crew searched everywhere, but found no sign of the two men. They probably failed to catch the guard, tumbled back, and were struck by the wheel and killed. 
tom had never jumped for the guard at all but had plunged headfirst into the river and dived under the wheel it was nothing i could have done it easy enough and i said so but everybody went on just the same making a wonderful to-do over that ass as if he had done something great that girl couldn't seem to have enough of that pitiful hero the rest of the trip but little i cared i loathed her anyway the way we came to mistake the sounding boat's lantern for the buoy light was this my chief said that after laying the buoy he fell away and watched it till it seemed to be secure then he took up a position a hundred yards below it and a little to one side of the steamer's course headed the sounding boat upstream and waited having to wait some time he and the officer got to talking he looked up when he judged that the steamer was about on the reef saw that the buoy was gone but supposed that the steamer had already run over it he went on with his talk he noticed that the steamer was getting very close down on him but that was the correct thing but it was her business to shave him closely for convenience in taking him aboard he was expecting her to sheer off until the last moment then it flashed upon him that she was trying to run him down mistaking his lantern for the buoy light so he sang out stand by to spring for the guard men and in the next instant the jump was made but i am wandering from what i was intending to do that is make plainer than perhaps appears in my previous papers some of the peculiar requirements of the science of piloting first of all there is one faculty which a pilot must incessantly cultivate until he has brought it to absolute perfection nothing short of perfection will do that faculty is memory he cannot stop with merely thinking a thing is so-and-so he must know it for this is eminently one of the exact sciences with what scorn a pilot was looked upon in the old times if he ever ventured to deal in that feeble phrase i think instead of the vigorous one i know one cannot easily realize what a tremendous thing it is to know every trivial detail of twelve hundred miles of river and know it with absolute exactness if you will take the longest street in new york and travel up and down it conning its features patiently until you know every house and window and door and lamp-post and big and little sign by art and know them so accurately that you can instantly name the one you are abreast of when you are set down at random in that street in the middle of an inky black night you will then have a tolerable notion of the amount and the exactness of a pilot's knowledge who carries the mississippi river in his head and then if you will go on until you know every street crossing the character size and position of the crossing stones and the varying depth of mud in each of those numberless places you will have some idea of what the pilot must know in order to keep a mississippi steamer out of trouble next if you will take half of the signs in that long street and change their places once a month and still manage to know their new positions accurately on dark nights and keep up with these repeated changes without making any mistakes you will understand what is required of a pilot's peerless memory by the fickle mississippi i think a pilot's memory is about the most wonderful thing in the world to know the old and new testaments by heart and be able to recite them glibly forward or backward or begin at random anywhere in the book and recite both ways and never trip or make a mistake is no extravagant mass of knowledge and no marvelous facility compared to a pilot's massed knowledge of the mississippi 
and his marvelous facility in the handling of it. I make this comparison deliberately, and I believe I am not expanding the truth when I do it. Many will think my figure too strong, but pilots will not. And how easily and comfortably the pilot's memory does its work! How placidly effortless is its way! How unconsciously it lays up its vast stores hour by hour, day by day, and never loses or mislays a single valuable package of them all! Take an instance. Let a leadsman cry, Half twain! Half twain! Half twain! Half twain! Half twain! until it becomes as monotonous as the ticking of a clock. Let conversation be going on all the time, and the pilot be doing his share of the talking, and no longer listening to the leadsman, and in the midst of this endless string of half-twains let a single quarter-twain be interjected without emphasis, and then the half-twain cry go on again, just as before. Two or three weeks later that pilot can describe with precision the boat's position in the river when that quarter-twain was uttered, and give you such a lot of head-marks, stern-marks, and side-marks to guide you, that you ought to be able to take the boat there and put her in at that same spot again yourself. The cry of quarter-twain did not really take his mind from his talk, but his trained faculties instantly photographed the bearings, noted the change of depth, and laid up the important details for future reference without requiring any assistance from him in the matter. If you were walking and talking with a friend, and another friend at your side kept up a monotonous repetition of the vowel sound A for a couple of blocks, and then in the midst interjected an R, thus A, 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 R, A, 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 etc., and gave the R no emphasis, you would not be able to state two or three weeks afterward that the R had been put in, nor be able to tell what objects you were passing at the moment it was done. But you could if your memory had been patiently and laboriously trained to do that sort of thing mechanically. Give a man a tolerably fair memory to start with, and piloting will develop it into a very colossus of capability, but only in the matters it is daily drilled in. A time would come when the man's faculties could not help noticing landmarks and soundings, and his memory could not help holding on to them with the grip of a vice. But if you asked that same man at noon what he had for breakfast, it would be ten chances to one that he could not tell you. Astonishing things can be done with the human memory if you will devote it faithfully to one particular line of business. At the time that wages soared so high on the Missouri River, my chief, Mr. B., went up there and learned more than a thousand miles of that stream with an ease and rapidity that were astonishing. When he had seen each division once in the daytime and once at night, his education was so nearly complete that he took out a daylight license. A few trips later he took out a full license, and went to piloting day and night, and he ranked A-1, too. Mr. B. placed me as steersman for a while under a pilot whose feats of memory were a constant marvel to me. However, his memory was born in him, I think, not built. For instance, somebody would mention a name. Instantly Mr. J. would break in, Oh, I knew him. Sallow-faced, red-headed fellow, with a little scar on the side of his throat like a splinter under the flesh. He was only in the southern trade six months. That was thirteen years ago. I made a trip with him. There was five feet in the upper river then. The Henry Blake grounded at the foot of Tower Island, drawing four and a half. 
and george elliott unshipped her rudder on the wreck of the sunflower why the sunflower didn't sink until i know when she sunk it was three years before that on the second of december asa hardy was captain of her and his brother john was first clerk and it was his first trip in her too tom jones told me these things a week afterward in new orleans he was first mate of the sunflower captain hardy stuck a nail in his foot the sixth of july of the next year and died of the lockjaw on the fifteenth his brother john died two years after third of march erysipelas i never saw either of the hardys they were allegheny river men but people who knew them told me all these things and they said captain hardy wore yarn socks winter and summer just the same and his first wife's name was jane shook she was from new england and his second one died in a lunatic asylum it was in the blood she was from lexington kentucky name was horton before she was married and so on by the hour the man's tongue would go he could not forget anything it was simply impossible the most trivial details remained as distinct and luminous in his head after they had lain there for years as the most memorable events his was not simply a pilot's memory its grasp was universal if he were talking about a trifling letter he had received seven years before he was pretty sure to deliver you the entire screed from memory and then without observing that he was departing from the true line of his talk he was more than likely to hurl in a long-drawn parenthetical biography of the writer of that letter and you were lucky indeed if he did not take up that writer's relatives one by one and give you their biographies too such a memory as that is a great misfortune to it all occurrences are on the same size its possessor cannot distinguish an interesting circumstance from an uninteresting one as a talker he is bound to clog his narrative with tiresome details and make himself an insufferable bore moreover he cannot stick to his subject he picks up every little grain of memory he discerns in his way and so is led aside mr j would start out with the honest intention of telling you a vastly funny anecdote about a dog he would be so full of laugh that he could hardly begin then his memory would start with the dog's breed and personal appearance drift into a history of his owner of his owner's family with descriptions of weddings and burials that had occurred in it together with recitals of congratulatory verses and obituary poetry provoked by the same then this memory would recollect that one of these events occurred during the celebrated hard winter of such and such a year and a minute description of that winter would follow along with the names of people who were frozen to death and statistics showing the high figures which pork and hay went up to pork and hay would suggest corn and fodder corn and fodder would suggest cows and horses the latter would suggest the circus and certain celebrated bareback riders the transition from the circus to the menagerie was easy and natural from the elephant to equatorial africa was but a step then of course the heathen savages would suggest religion and at the end of three or four hours tedious jaw the watch would change and jay would go out of the pilot-house muttering extracts from sermons he had heard years before about the efficacy of prayer as a means of grace and the original first mention would be all you had learned about that dog after all this waiting and hungering a pilot must have a memory but there are two higher qualities which he must also have he must have good and quick judgment and decision and a cool calm courage that no peril can shake 
give a man the merest trifle of pluck to start with and by the time he has become a pilot he cannot be unmanned by any danger a steamboat can get into but one cannot quite say the same for judgment judgment is a matter of brains and a man must start with a good stock of that article or he will never succeed as a pilot the growth of courage in the pilot-house is steady all the time but it does not reach a high and satisfactory condition until some time after the young pilot has been standing his own watch alone and under the staggering weight of all the responsibilities connected with the position when an apprentice has become pretty thoroughly acquainted with the river he goes clattering along so fearlessly with a steamboat night or day that he presently begins to imagine that it is his courage that animates him but the first time the pilot steps out and leaves him to his own devices he finds out it was the other man's he discovers that the article has been left out of his own cargo altogether the whole river is bristling with exigencies in a moment he is not prepared for them he does not know how to meet them all his knowledge forsakes him and within fifteen minutes he is as white as a sheet and scared almost to death therefore pilots wisely train these cubs by various strategic tricks to look danger in the face a little more calmly a favorite way of theirs is to play a friendly swindle upon the candidate mr b served me in this fashion once and for years afterwards i used to blush even in my sleep when i thought of it i had become a good steersman so good indeed that i had all the work to do on our watch night or day mr b seldom made a suggestion to me all he ever did was to take the wheel on particularly bad nights or in particularly bad crossings land the boat when she needed to be landed play gentleman of leisure nine-tenths of the watch and collect his wages the lower river was about bank full and if anybody had questioned my ability to run any crossing between cairo and new orleans without help or instruction i should have felt irreparably hurt the idea of being afraid of any crossing in the lot in the daytime was a thing too preposterous for contemplation well one matchless summer's day i was bowling down the bend above island sixty six brimful of self-conceit and carrying my nose as high as a draught's when mr b said i am going below a while i suppose you know the next crossing this was almost an affront it was about the plainest and simplest crossing in the whole river one couldn't come to any harm whether he ran it right or not and as for depth there never had been any bottom there i knew all this perfectly well now how to run it why i can run it with my eyes shut how much water is there in it well that is an odd question i couldn't get bottom there with a church steeple you think so do you the very tone of the question shook my confidence that was what mr b was expecting he left without saying anything more i began to imagine all sorts of things mr b unknown to me of course sent somebody down to the forecastle uh, with some mysterious instructions to the leadsman another messenger was sent to whisper among the officers and then mr b went into hiding behind a smokestack where he could observe results presently the captain stepped out on the hurricane deck next the chief mate appeared then a clerk every moment or two a straggler was added to my audience before i got to the head of the island i had fifteen or twenty people assembled down there under my nose i began to wonder what the trouble was as i started across the captain glanced aloft at me and said with a sham uneasiness in his voice where's mr b gone below sir 
but that did the business for me my imagination began to construct dangers out of nothing and they multiplied faster than i could keep the run of them all at once i imagined i saw shoal water ahead the wave of coward agony that surged through me then came near dislocating every joint in me all my confidence in that crossing vanished i seized the bell-rope dropped it ashamed seized it again dropped it once more clutched it tremblingly once again and pulled it so feebly that i could hardly hear the stroke myself captain and mate sang out instantly and both together starboard lad there and quick about it this was another shock i began to climb the wheel like a squirrel but i would hardly get the boat started to port before i would see new dangers on that side and away i would spin to the other only to find perils accumulating to starboard and be crazy to get to port again then came the leadsman's sepulchral cry deep four deep four in a bottomless crossing the terror of it took my breath away mark three mark three quarterless three half twain this was frightful i seized the bell ropes and stopped the engines quarter twain quarter twain mark twain i was helpless i did not know what in the world to do i was quaking from head to foot and i could have hung my hat on my eyes they stuck out so far quarter less twain nine and a half we were drawing nine my hands were in a nerveless flutter i could not ring a bell intelligibly with them i flew to the speaking tube and shouted to the engineer oh ben if you love me back her quick ben oh back the immortal soul out of her i heard the door close gently i looked around and there stood mr b smiling a bland sweet smile then the audience on the hurricane deck sent up a shout of humiliating laughter i saw it all now and i felt meaner than the meanest man in human history i laid in the lead set the boat in her marks came ahead on the engines and said it was a fine trick to play on an orphan wasn't it i suppose i'll never hear the last of how i was ass enough to heave the lead at the head of sixty-six well no you won't maybe in fact i hope you won't for i want you to learn something by that experience didn't you know there was no bottom in that crossing yes sir i did very well then you shouldn't have allowed me or anybody else to shake your confidence in that knowledge try to remember that and another thing when you get into a dangerous place don't turn coward that isn't going to help matters any it was a good enough lesson but pretty hardly learned yet about the hardest part of it was that for months i so often had to hear a phrase which i had conceived a particular distaste for it was oh ben if you love me back her end of chapter five